Welcome to Public Intellectual. If you are enjoying this series of conversations, why not consider becoming a Patreon supporter? You'll get access to bonus episodes and blog entries, and you'll help keep the show going. Go to patreon.com slash publicintellectual. Recently, Roseanne Barr caused some trouble on Twitter by posting conspiracy theories about children enslaved in sex rings run by the extremely powerful. People seem surprised, and yet, decades ago, she was a loud voice in the media when accusations of satanic, ritualistic sexual abuse of children were going down in the 1990s. Of all the things we are revisiting from the 90s, from the fashion to debates about consent on college campuses to an inexplicably bad reboot of the X-Files, the satanic panic about abused children seems to be the most random. After all, why would these stories keep reemerging despite no evidence? In the first run at accusations of widespread sexual abuse, people went to jail and their lives were ruined based on nothing but accusation and memories recovered through hypnosis. And despite most of those stories eventually being shown to be bullshit and people finally released from prison after years, here we are again. But there's something alluring about conspiracy thinking, a way of understanding and giving order to a world that is mostly chaotic and unknowable. Why is there pain and suffering? Well, either God is doing it or the government is doing it, but it might not be tolerable to think everything is random and there's nothing we can do to protect ourselves from pain. Susan Lepselter is the author of the book, The Resonance of Unseen Things, And it's a really amazing look at UFO abduction narratives and how closely they align with other abduction narratives, specifically the white women abducted by native tribes whose stories were told in early American history. Her book is a fascinating look at how some stories seem to become contagious and how the stories we tell actually shape how we experience trauma and why conspiracy theories won't stay dead. To start us off, maybe you could just tell us a bit about what interested you in the UFO abduction narrative um, to, to start with. Sure. Well, um, this is back in the 90s, um, and I was in graduate school in folklore and anthropology at University of Texas. And um, I'd started an entirely different project, um, a different ethnographic project, ethnographic meaning um, participant observation, going and hanging out with people and trying to understand their reality from their perspective. And um, and I saw in the newspaper that there was um, a support group, it was then called Meeting for um, People Who Had Been Abducted by UFOs or Aliens. And um, I was already really interested in storytelling. In fact, I had been out of school for a decade and I um, had worked as a freelance writer, and I was really just focusing on storytelling to begin with. So um, I thought, wow, you know, I want to see what this is about. And um, I went to the meeting, and basically it was people sitting in a circle um, telling their stories. Um, And they were amazing stories. They were 
amazing memories um, and people would support each other and, and try to figure out um, not necessarily whether they were true or not, but how to make meaning of these things. And um, I was immediately hooked. It was a storytelling community. Um, and <laughs> I decided to switch my project to, um, to this. So that's, that's sort of how I got interested in it. Was through the root of being interested in stories to begin with and the social place of stories. Yeah, it's interesting that it happened in the 90s because certainly UFO abduction stories were a huge part of um, the popular culture. There were there were movies, there was the X-Files, of course. Um, but I, that was when I was sort of a teenager, was in the 90s, and it was such a huge part of... Um, of just popular culture and entertainment. Um, and now it's sort of disappeared. Now we don't really, we don't really have those stories anymore. Um, although we did have in the New York Times a story about, uh, the Department of Defense admitting, I guess, that they had a secret UFO program the whole time. <laughs> um, which I, which I find very interesting. Well, you know, look at the, um, okay. So this is what I love to talk about. <laughs> it's not that people have stopped believing that they've been abducted by aliens or even that this is the first time we've known that there has been a federal program investigating UFOs. In fact, there have been programs um, run by the government investing UFOs and by the military for decades. And they come kind of come in and out of public consciousness as does UFO production. So if we're going to look at those kinds of stories as points of public interest or public feeling, um, there's a really interesting shift from the 90s concern with the sort of invasion of the body and the sort of intimate kind of violation that goes on with, um, you know, reproductive technologies and, um, and that sort of thing to right now uh, <laughs> at this unbearably precarious moment um, suddenly going back to thinking of UFOs invading the planet itself, the, um, the sort of vulnerability shifting from the body to the planet. Um, I don't think I have to spell out what I'm trying to get at here, but I think we're at a moment where um, consciousness about the planet as itself, a kind of a vulnerable organism is, is high or should be. So I think the kind of stories that kind of, get a charge um, in, in the public, uh, tell us about things beyond the story themselves. And also, um, so during the 90s, there was also, um, I guess, the sort of satanic panic or, and the recovered memories of incest and rape and violation by satanic cults that didn't happen. And I guess the... Um, the overlapping um quantity between the these two things of the ufo abduction and the um the sexual abuse besides just being about um the invasion of the body is also recovered memory like recovered memory plays a part in both of these um and how they sort of uh took over the culture um how much of when you were talking to sort of survivors of uh, UFO abduction, um, how much of it was recovered memory? How much of it was um, not necessarily in the therapeutic hypnotic state that was so popular with the satanic abuse revelations, but um, 
sort of there was a an, a weird feeling and then trying to construct a story to explain the feeling kind of kind of aspect of it yeah i mean the whole um the whole episode of the memory wars memory wars is really interesting as it relates to this and it relates to this on lots of different levels um so the people i met i met some people who had recovered memories of of abduction through hypnosis and their memories tended to be more like the kind of classic abduction story that you hear about um you know having missing time and um remembering through hypnosis certain kinds of experiments done on the body um a woman who i interviewed a few times had um, that kind of memory recovered through hypnosis, and then she remembered having a child, a hybrid that way too. Um, and so I met some people who had undergone hypnosis this way. I met a lot of other people who had remembered weird things, quote unquote, their entire lives, um, and started to make sense of all of the weird things in, in a sort of a larger story about abduction. And then I met people who had. Um, spontaneously recovered memories when they would see things that reminded them of the original abduction as they saw it, which is really more the Freudian sense of, of how repression works is that, you know, you keep repressing things and um, there's all these chains of association and, and it sort of threatens to, to emerge um, if it's, if it's, you know, if you are reminded of it too closely. Um, so sometimes people would see a picture of an alien or an alien face and then start to remember things. Um, or what they had, they called screen memories, which were um, also a Freudian term. People used it really frequently. Um, things that were put in place of the actual abduction memory, but that had some kind of associative likeness to it. So something, another creature with big black eyes, for example. So the people I met had all sorts of different relationships to memory, not just the recovered memory under hypnosis that's so famous, um, but certainly that's what the background was for all of this other talk. I mean, that was what was really in the air as, you know, this entire kind of movement um, to recover memories through hypnosis um, and to find a truth through the accumulated patterns of different people's memories as they emerged under hypnosis. And as you were pointing out, this is, um, this was very debated through the nineties. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me how these stories become, um, sort of uniform, um, in the sense that there becomes a kind of, uh, widely accepted, version of what an alien abduction or a satanic ritual abuse um, situation would look like. And so at the beginning of, of these things, you have these kind of wild stories, and then it all becomes everyone starts telling the same story. Um, do you have any sense of like how that works? Um, and also why it becomes um, suspicious to tell a story that deviates from that once it becomes acceptable? Yeah, I mean, that is what is really, really interesting to me. And that it seems to me like kind of a building block of culture, actually. So, you know, you think about experiences that you have in general. It doesn't have to be something so fraught as an alien abduction or a satanic ritual abuse. Um, we construct what is meaningful to us in, in narrative. And certain things get edited out, certain things get foregrounded, certain things get backgrounded. And you can see this happening, you know, as a cultural process. Some stories that re 
actually, this is not um, as unrelated as it might seem. Some stories become the kinds of narratives that just start to seem like common sense. You can't think outside of that narrative structure for a while, after a while. Um, and one of those, I think, what has been, you know, the story of American colonization, for example, the colonization of the West, um, which for me resonates really heavily with alien abduction, colonization stories. Um, so with these stories, like with the alien abduction narratives, you have certain researchers who are looking um, to understand a particular um, series of events and they really um, they really foreground a particular kind of experience through the story. And then that story goes out into the world and it, it becomes manifest in many ways. Meanwhile, other people are having all other kinds of stories, which some of the kind of more famous UFO researchers who are trying to um, get, you know, kind of public agreement that these were actual real events. Um, in the sense of materially real, they really wanted to look at the sort of the sameness of these narratives. So you see this narrative convention emerge, um, and then it starts to seem like that's what it is. There are other variations. People have all kinds of weird experiences, but that's what becomes sort of the standard. And so you can see it come into view, you know. And then when people have experiences that they can't explain or that have lots of different variants, sometimes you might focus more on elements that are part of the public narrative. But, you know, I met people who believed that, for example, that probably the reason a lot of people were recovering memories of sexual abuse is because it was too traumatic to remember an abduction. And so that would stand in for the abduction. So, you know, which story is foregrounded depends on lots of things. Yeah, I mean, it became to the point, and I think um, uh, the popular culture um, sort of X-Files and, and so on played a part of this too, but if I wanted to sort of fabricate a story of alien abduction, like I would know exactly which sort of points to hit um, as far as the bright light, the missing time, um, the, the probing, the, the eyes and so on. Um, but also the same with, um, you know, I, I see it happening on social media with sort of hashtag campaigns of certain stories are, um, and this was happening a couple of years ago with the sort of hashtag yes, all women. Um, certain stories were, would get more attention and more, um, retweeting and, and comments and so on. And so other people were sort of molding their stories, um, uh, in order to, uh, to follow the, that example or that template that had worked for other people. Um, and so it, it's this kind of thing of like, you know, part of it might be, especially with social media, a, um, an attempt at legitimizing um, your experience or to make it seem, um, uh, more relatable or, or instantly understandable. Um, but it's interesting of how it happens like unconsciously and kind of to so many different stories in our culture, the same, the same sort of, um, monolithic, uh, experience. I know. Isn't that amazing? I mean, with the satanic panic, 
um, trend that you talked about. One of the more famous cases that Lawrence Wright wrote about, Remembering Satan, because originally so if you remember that one from Olympia, Washington, the father who had been accused by his daughters started to remember maybe kind of participating in these wild things, which later it was proved he didn't do. So he himself <laughs> was subject to this sort of unconscious melding to the memory, as you say, um, because it starts to become, you know, it starts to become the air you breathe in some ways. And I don't know what was resonant for him in those stories, um, but he he was willing to sort of suspend his original memories and go with it for a little while. Um, so I want to make clear that just because there are some recovered memories that are false, I do believe that um, you can't say that that means all recovered memories are definitely false. There are weird things that trauma does to people. Um, and sometimes trauma makes people remember things all the time and not be able to get away from it and not be able to symbolize it in dreams, but to have this sort of literalness of it always with you. And sometimes trauma screws with memory in a way that people do forget things and remember them later. I mean, so that that's true also. And I, I sort of don't want to sound like some of the people who are so sure of themselves that any recovered memory can't be true. Um, memory is so difficult because it is so malleable, but sometimes, you know, sometimes somebody remembers something that happened to them decades before when they've not through any magical way, but they've, they've, you know, compartmentalized it or disassociated from it. So that can happen. Um, and one of the sort of, fascinating ideas um in in your book is this idea that the that these stories kind of um uh well I don't even know how to explain it like uh float around um in our collective unconscious or something and then every once in a while um something we just hit upon it again and vomit it back out uh in the sense of like these UFO abduction stories um, followed the template of um, abduction stories from early Americans being abducted by Native Americans and so on. Um, and then, um, you know, I was reading a book about sort of uh, heresy and purges of Jews in medieval Europe. And the accusations against Jews were exactly the same as the accusations that um, about satanic ritual abuse from the hoods to the drinking of the newborn baby's blood. Um, it was the exact same story. So it's obviously, I don't think that, you know, Every uh, UFO abduction person uh, has read um, these texts of Native American abduction. And I don't think that, obviously, that everybody who recovered memories of sexual abuse read stories about 12th century purges of Jews. Um, so how does that, does it matter how it works? Um, and do we need to actually think about this? Because it freaks me out when I think about it. <laughs> Oh, good. You know, I think, it, I think it's so amazing that it freaks me out, too. You know, to me, that is sort of um, the huge, amazing question about, about culture and about the ways in which we are really connected to each other through memories that we are not always completely aware of sharing. Um, we participate 
and stories from the moment we're born. And they take root in us and they help us make sense of the world in particular ways. I'm, I don't believe that all, that most of it is conscious. Um, you get different kinds of stories in different places around the world, but these sorts of patterns, you know, do emerge and have historical depth to them. So really, I don't think that anything we say as is, is an isolated utterance. Um, and I'm, I'm influenced here by a literary um, theorist named Mikhail Bakhtin, um, as I'm talking here, but just the idea of all stories as having kind of historical depth of being um, a dialogue or more, and not just, you know, kind of individualistic expression of a singular episode. So, you know, we're social beings, and we have a social capacity with our imaginations. And now there's also this way in which there's this sort of like physiological human um, inclinations towards certain kinds of narratives, because like humans around the world have sleep paralysis, for example. And sleep paralysis has certain features that lend it, lends the experience of sleep paralysis to having a certain kind of supernatural event with um, either being suffocated or having a creature sit on your chest, etc. So that's a pretty universal experience, being paralyzed, waking up paralyzed and feeling a sinister um, presence that is not you, an external presence. Um, in your room or on top of you. And the ways in which that's told vary. I mean, it depends what culture you're in. Um, so you'll, you can tell that story really differently, but that's, that's a kind of a physiological aspect to a certain kind of weird, uncanny experience. Um, but obviously, you know, I think that there's other stories that we often don't even notice that um, shape the kinds of experiences we have, including, including uncanny or weird experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And you mostly focus um, your book on the, on the West, which has its own kind of different stories um, that it tells than other parts of America. Um, you know, uh, well, well, yeah, let's just turn there and then I'll, then I'll, uh, ask a follow up. But, um, but yeah, I, I mean, sort of what is the, the story of the American West's relationship to sort of these abduction narratives? Right, right. Well, you know, here we have this story of, um, this sort of glorious conquest, let's say, where there's manifest destiny and there's this kind of mandate to, um, civilize this, you know, kind of um, uncivilized terrain and um, and create America, right? And and that, of course, even echoes you know the first colonization of America from Europe. Um, and that narrative starts to change, you know, and um, after well, you know, after a lot of things started to change. Let's say after the Vietnam War. But people start to question that. And, you know, there's the American Indian movement and there's other things that kind of get into the broad narrative of, of what made America and the kind of the myth of colonization. Um, and it starts to lose some of its, um, you know, monolithic power. 
Um, it starts to become seen as, um, you know, morally compromised and um, other points of view start to emerge into the story as they had to, as they should, of course. Um, the story itself starts to fragment in some ways. But that's not an easy process for a lot of people who um, have that story as a large part of their identity. Um, and so when something that's that big of a master narrative starts to change, um, it's not surprising to me that there are sort of effects that um, people might protest that change, people might cling more tightly to it, whatever. Um, so it's interesting to me that um, the UFO abduction narrative is really a story of colonizing our world. We become the natives of this world. We become the, you know, undisputed um, residents of a place that's being taken over by an outside. And so the, the point of view shifts um, and the human becomes equated with, you know, the natural. <laughs> the alien becomes equated with the kind of the overly technological um, outsider coming in and, and trying to um, claim this nature. So the story shifts, you know. Yeah, it's interesting how it um, repositions um, these people as from sort of victor to victim. Um, in the sense that, you know, uh, white people in the West are um, the descendants of the people who uh, were victorious over you know, Mexicans and uh, natives and everybody else um, and drove them out. And so there's this kind of um, anxiety of, uh, well, what if what we did to other people started happening to us? Um, you know, some of it feels like unreconciled um, American history shadow stuff, um, so because we all kind of acknowledge the fact that America was built on a genocide, but we don't do anything about it. <laughs> we don't try to think about it really or feel things about it or, um, or try to reconcile that. But we know, but there's a lot of uns unsaid stuff there. And maybe that's just having this effect on our, all of our unconscious behavior. Yeah. I mean, haunting, I, I think of this as a kind of futuristic haunting in a way. Um, because haunting, of course, is what happens when there's some kind of um, unfinished um, episode in history, something that has not been reconciled, something that hasn't been dealt with. Um, and so you get these returns. Um, that's what the uncanny is based on. If you're going to use the sort of classic Freudian definition of the uncanny, it's, it's stuff that was, it's too hard to look at entirely. And so it's sort of incompletely repressed. Um, it sort of starts to come back in all these other forms. Um, and these, these alien stories, um, contain within them all of this sort of undealt with history that we have. What's really interesting to me is the way the alien abduction story or the just the, the story of, you know, the colonization of Earth by extraterrestrials, it links the story of, say, American colonization and genocide with other stories that have similar 
points of trauma or um, imbalances of power, like you will see um, stories about, um, you know, well, the whole idea of the experimentation on bodies brings in a kind of um, unfinished trauma from what happened um, in Nazi Germany uh, with medical experimentation, Dr. Mangala and so forth. Um, there's, you know, there are, there are pictures of aliens with, with swastikas on their foreheads. Um, there are episodes of alien abduction that remind one of slavery, frankly. You know, these sorts of ideas of being um, transported in a kind of, you know, uncomfortable way, taken against your will. Um, and so all of these different stories really kind of start to resonate against each other, which is one of the points of my book. Um, and they, they build something that feels really powerful that isn't any one story. So it's not like just like alien abduction is a symbol of colonization, but it draws on it and it sort of, you know, shows our anxieties that haven't been resolved or, or the fact that, as you say, we haven't done anything about it. Um, and, you know, it shows that to us, I think. Um, one of the things that I found interesting was how much um, hostility toward the state um, and the American government there was uh, within these communities um, in the sense of um, both in the sense of like, well, the American government knows and they're and they're withholding this information from us and, and and the sense that maybe the American government is behind some of it. Um, and it just seemed like it was, it was interesting to me, the, the bringing up of Waco in the book, um, as somebody who, who lives in the Midwest, um, Waco and Ruby Ridge had, I think, a huge impact on our culture that has not been examined, at least not in comparison to something like September 11th. Um, and so, ha but has caused this kind of shift in, you know, not necessarily the sort of white nationalists, but just in this sort of distrust, um, in the, in the break of this sort of contract. Um, and the fact that it remains, um, so little a part of the cultural conversation, I think it is, um, I think it has this weird power over the story. Um, you know, I was, I was trying to find a book on Ruby Ridge and there was like only one in print, which is crazy to me. Um, but anyway, so that's just my own, that's my own sort of interest in this. Yeah, that is really interesting. And, you know, when I was doing this research, it was it was years ago, and um, the sort of conspiracy theory that you're talking about and sort of anti-government conspiracy theory was very marginal at the time. It was um, something that, you know, you just didn't hear unless you were kind of out in marginal places. Um, and in some ways, as you're saying, it still isn't examined, but that sort of conspiratorial stance has moved um, as a public feeling into into the center of power. And, you know, President Trump won an election saying things that, you know, about <laughs> about how the government couldn't be trusted and, and sort of taking a lot of conspiracy theories as a um, as a sort of basis for understanding um, what was going on in America. 
And this sort of feeling of disenfranchisement and distance from the government and feeling a sort of resentment went from people who really didn't have a lot of power and who were feeling um, disenfranchised in a lot of ways, I think has been exploited um, in various ways and has kind of emerged as a way to, to kind of make sense of things from a position of power now. Um, which is scary to me. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't there a day that Trump, that Trump uh, promised to release all the UFO information that the government had or something like, you know, I think he said it on Twitter, and then nothing ever happened. But it was just this kind of like, and we'll release all the files on, on Roswell and, and Area 51 and all this kind of stuff. And uh, nothing, nothing ever came of it, but, um, it was weird that it, that it went to that place. Um, just like every, every sort of anti-government conspiracy theory, like he, as the leader of the government, 100% seems to believe in. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so what is the allure of the conspiracy theory? Um, besides just the fact that it kind of, um, helps you deal with like cognitive dissonance and, and uncertainty, um, how does a, you know, how do you fall down that hole? Hmm. Well, first of all, um, you know, what is a conspiracy theory versus a conspiracy? That is sure. <laughs> so just call something a conspiracy theory already um, states a position towards it that somehow you don't think that it's something that, that has a basis in a real conspiracy. So that's important to point out to begin with. Um, but the ways in which I think conspiracy theories themselves that can't really ever be proved or disproved start to build is um, what I found when I was talking to people who had a very strong kind of conspiratorial sensibility is that it's a way of understanding the world is filled with all of these connections. Um, and you follow the trail, you follow the way in which these connections um, kind of build on each other. You connect the dots, people say all the time. And you can never really get to a final ground. Um, but you, you build up a network, a sensibility, and um, you sort of start to see the world as having um, both a structure and um, not necessarily a center to the structure. There's always some kind of imagined agency that controlling everything, but you're never really going to get to it. And that can be very compelling. Yeah. And I'm, I'm also curious about if this is a kind of um, a self-protection against being lied to um, in the sense of something that remains a, a trauma that is unspoken um, or undealt with. There, I think it does something to... I think it does something to the human brain to be lied to um, and to have an internal reality mismatch with an external reality. Um, and like conspiracy theories and, and these kinds of things are just a way of protecting sanity or, or the self. Um, maybe I'm completely no, off base. I love the way you said that. I love the way you said that. I think that that's really true. And I wouldn't, necessarily even limit it to protecting the self as much as expressing something that actually is true. So if you think of conspiracy theory the way we started to talk about it as just sort of um, a white nationalist um, disenfranchisement um, that became powerful, that's one form of expression. But there's all sorts of groups that have been um, 
oppressed and persecuted and dominated that have their own conspiracy theories. And they usually have um, a kind of expressive core that tells you about some kind of experience of being um, mistreated in some way. So um, maybe it is a sort of protection of sanity to sort of consolidate all of these experiences that one has had um, against a power, sometimes an unnameable power, because it's too big, it's too vast, it's systems and structures that you can't necessarily, you know, see. Um, and so your conspiracy theories tell that, tell that story often. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, it's interesting. The with the beginning of the the Trump administration, there was the reemergence of of the children being ritually abused and the guy showing up with a gun at the pizza parlor <laughs> um, in Washington D.C. to liberate the children. So it does keep it all keeps kind of reemerging um, in an in an interesting way. But obviously, sort of having a a government and an, and an administration and a media culture that sort of um, gives space um, to these kind of wild ideas and conspiracy theories and untruths and propaganda and all this kind of stuff is, is doing something to to bring it out of people. Um, Pizzagate and- is really fascinating in that way because you have both aspects that we're talking about in the conspiracy theory. You have something that touches a nerve that that, that drives some person um, to, you know, drive up there and, you know, where was he from again? He was from a different state um, and he, he came to rescue the children. But that idea had been purposely um, exploited um, in, a, in a political way by um, people with, you know, with a lot of media power um, that this, you know, that there were these terrible actions going on against children. Um, and you know, so you have both people disseminating um, anxieties for political gain and people who they um, affect. So, I mean, what I'd say about paying attention to this sort of um, this this particular form of American imagination is we have to pay attention to it. It can have um, potentially liberatory effects. It can be a way to, you know, recreate the real in some way. Um, and it can also have, um, disastrous effects. It can have, um, reactionary effects that, um, that cause a lot of damage. It's not clear which way something will go just because of the fact that it's a conspiracy theory. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.